You are listening to audio from Citizens Church Almira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. Let's begin by reading some Old Testament passages, okay? Exodus chapter 40. is not able verses starting in verse 35. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the people of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did, they did not set out till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And the fire was in it by night, in the sight of all those in the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. And when the priests came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. These are a couple of instances where we see what, what is called the Shekinah glory, where the presence of God comes down and it physically manifests, manifests itself in a smoke or a cloud. Like picture that in here. If you're suddenly sitting in here and this whole big room fills with smoke and cloud, the presence of God comes in and you can physically see it. Well, that's what's happening in these Old Testament passages. And the reason why I just read these was we want to keep these Old Testament images, this image of the smoke and the presence of God coming down for the story that we're going to look at this morning, which is the transfiguration story. If you've got a Bible or on your phone, please turn to Mark chapter 9 so that you can see for yourself the text as we go through it verse by verse. Yesterday, we were watching um, some TV, and um, a trailer came on, you know, like a trailer for a movie. And so I love watching trailers because the beauty of trailers is they show you the best parts of the movie. Now, the really disappointing thing is if you go see the movie, and those were all the best parts, and the rest of the movie stinks. But a trailer or like the preview for the movie is amazing because they put all these great parts in so that, I mean, the whole goal is that they will hook you to hopefully go and see that or experience the fullness of the movie. That's the goal behind a trailer or a preview. In our story today, we're getting a preview. We're getting a glimpse. And specifically, Jesus is giving the disciples around him who are on this mountain walk, a glimpse into who he is and the fullness of who Jesus is. And so we want to keep this idea of the preview of the fullness of God that is being displayed for us. And as we look through our text, we're going to see a number of different ways that the power of Christ is shown. And the first one is this, is that there is power on the mountaintop. So again, if you have your Bible with you. Look at verse 1 of chapter 9, the power of the mountaintop, which verse 1 is kind of a slightly confusing maybe verse. It kind of fits in the middle of 
chapter 8 that we taught last week, and it kind of fits in chapter 9, but it, it kind of sits on its own sometimes. So let's just deal with it, and then we'll move on with the story, okay? Chapter 9, verse 1 says this, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Okay, Jesus, you know, word of God, what does this actually have to say? There's a number of different views to make sense of this verse because it, it feels like it's speaking really broadly about what God is doing. So there's actually three views to this verse, okay? The first is that it is prophesying that the second coming and the fullness of the kingdom, all of that would come and take place before the hearers of this text, either the disciples or the, you know, the early Christians uh, would die. So before they would die, all of Christ's kingship and everything that he stands for, his kingdom, would actually be established. That's kind of one view that's out there. Another view is that Jesus is really just talking about his death, burial, resurrection in kind of different language. Okay, so this is kind of another way of viewing that, okay, the kingdom is going to come through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Okay, that's version number two. Also can make sense, okay? And then the third version that's out there, and these are only three, there's more than this, okay? But these are kind of like the top three. The third one is that Christ is actually prophesying about what they're about to experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. So basically what they're going to go through a week after this statement is going to be the presence of the King Jesus and of the kingdom coming down and they're going to experience it obviously before their death. Okay, so my leaning is toward the last one, is toward the third one, but there's a lot of people who have different views and think that the first and the second are valid and they both can also make sense, okay? But here's the key to take away. What Jesus is saying is that they're going to experience the kingdom of God in some form. They're going to experience the nearness of the kingdom. And we know that the second coming still hasn't happened. And we're going to get to that later in the text. But at some point, the bottom line is that the kingdom of God has come down. And in the text that we look at today, we will see that they're actually experiencing and rubbing shoulders with literally the kingdom of God as it comes down. And we still today are able to experience elements of that, even though it has not come into its fullness yet. So with kind of verse one out of the way, understanding that, okay, what Jesus is doing here is setting the stage for their experience of the kingdom of God. We come here to verses two and three, which is the moment where Christ transfigures before them. Let's read these verses again. Verse two, and after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. So here before these disciples, these three disciples, is this amazing experience. And part of the reason why this experience is so important is actually because of what we learned 
last week in chapter 8 when Jesus told them what it meant to follow him. Because we've talked about this a few times that a number of the disciples, maybe the majority of them, were actually following Jesus because there was this, this driving desire within themselves for freedom. Like for freedom. And for them it was from the shackles of the Roman government. And what they viewed as the oppression of Gentile people coming over them. And so they were looking, they were longing, like all of the Jews of that time, for some sort of liberation, some sort of freedom from the shackles of these Gentile people who were oppressing them. And so when Jesus came to them and said in chapter 8 at the end, in verse 34 and 35, when he said, here's, here's actually what the kingdom of God looks like. And here's what following the king looks like. It looks like losing your life. It looks like self-denial. It looks like sacrifice. And when they heard that teaching, Jesus knew that they were rattled to the core. And he has to have this kind of moment with them over and over again in their journey with Christ because the idea of like self-sacrifice, giving of ourselves, following Jesus even to the point of death, it's not something that probably any of us are really excited about. We'd rather have this triumphant journey, this walk into glory with Jesus by our side. Wouldn't that be the greater way to do it rather than self-denial. And so Jesus, knowing that they're struggling with that, knowing that they're wrestling with this view of the kingdom of God coming through sacrifice, through self-denial, he says, I'm going to actually then give you something. I'm going to give you a mountaintop experience so that you can be, in a sense, energized again, so that you can be committed to the calling of what it means to follow Christ. And so he comes down and he is transfigured before him. I don't know what your translation says. Ours talks about transfiguration, which is in the original Greek, it's this word metamorphosis, the same kind of word we use for butterflies, right? This transformation that happens before them. And it talks about how he starts to look radiant and intensely white that word radiance is this word for, for brilliance or like it, be, it would be used for like buffed and polished bronze or gold that would just shine under the sun, right? It's just like this brilliant light before them and all that they saw was this shining and, and whiteness like, like it says here, like nobody could ever clean like it, right? Like it's, I think some translations say like no launderer could do, right? You couldn't take it to any dry cleaner who would get it whiter than that, okay? Just pure, brilliant white. And so Jesus, for just a little moment, gives them a glimpse of who he is. Now, everybody would have been used to just regular Jesus, right? Like he's a regular man walking around. They would have been used to seeing him in his, his common way. And so this is something that Jesus took on when he came down as a baby. Philippians 2 puts it this way in, in verse 6. Who, which is Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, 
So what did he do then? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So part of Christ's humbling was actually to take on physical human flesh because what it did is it actually covered it. He, he put in place for a little while his glory and his brilliance. And now, this way, these three disciples, he just opens it right up. Kent Hughes puts it this way. He slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. It was a glance back and a look forward into his future glory. So Jesus, just for a moment there, he says, okay, you want to see what the kingdom of God is? Yes, on earth here it is self-denial, it is sacrifice. But look who I am. Look who the king truly is. And he reveals himself in all of his glory from eternity past all the way into eternity future. And they get this glimpse. Hebrews 1 puts it this way. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So the disciples in their moment of doubt and question, which is basically their whole story, right? All, all the years that they follow him. Get this glimpse, get this insight into who Jesus is. This creator, the one who sustains the universe. It's kind of hard to hear someone say that who looks just like a person, right? But to see the glory of Christ come alive before them was this great gift. It's a a glimpse which is meant to cause like excitement and eagerness. I don't know, I'm not like a, a car person, but I know there are car people and there's whole like magazines dedicated to cars, right? Car enthusiasts. And they have these pictures, I don't know if you've seen them before, of like next year's model, let's say, that the company is still testing. They're driving them around. And maybe it's like a new Mustang or something and they've changed the lights or they've changed some like part of the exterior of the body. And so they'll, they'll like cover that up with tape so that the car enthusiasts who are out there watching in the streets, maybe that's one of you, I don't know, like out there with a camera, you know, to try to take pictures of this new Mustang. They're trying to like hide it. But then you go to the car shows and then they unveil it, right? And there's like... I think I've never actually been to one, but there's like screams, right? There's like, ooh, there's all this like amazing excitement of here it is before them. And that's what's happening here. Jesus like lets go. He opens up. He unveils his true self and they get a glimpse into who he is. And it's recorded here for us as well. So Jesus kind of does that, but then he adds to it. We see here in verse 4. It goes on. So not only is Jesus kind of radiant and transformed before them, but verse 4 says, And there appeared to them Elijah, Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So suddenly here you see Jesus in all of his fullness, all of his glory, and then before him stands Elijah and Moses, these, these pillars of Old Testament Jewish thinking and Jewish imagination. So I hesitated to put this up here because I know I'm in enemy territory, but I grew up a Montreal Canadiens fan, okay? 
Okay, it's, everybody's okay with that. And so if you're talking to like a true Montreal Canadiens fan, like someone who knows the team, and they're like, who would you pick as like your top people? You know, they would go to like Jean Beliveau and Rocket Richard, and then they would kind of go on with their lists. These are like the pillars of historic Montreal Canadiens, okay? And if you're a Toronto fan, I'm not sure who it would be, like Dougie Gilmore, um, Wendell Clark, I don't know, okay? I'm not a fan of, of the Leafs, but... They go back to those who they know were successful, who were amazing. For Jesus, they are kind of the iconic people. And so for Jesus, the conversation around him begins with Moses and Elijah. These prophets who Old Testament Jewish believers would have held to, would held in revere and would know that they also had their own mountaintop experiences, Mount Sinai for Moses and Mount Horeb for Elijah. And now here they are on the mountaintop in a little conversation with Jesus. And so it would have been a stunning image for these disciples to see Jesus in his fullness. And now seeing him with these Old Testament prophets in, in conversation and who knows what they were talking about. And ultimately then Jesus kind of standing as preeminent to these Old Testament prophets. And we'll see that from the verses coming along there. So the power and the experience of the mountaintop. Which then leads now to the power of words. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 is great because it... Peter is amazing, right? Peter should give us, all of us hope, okay? So Peter, in verse 5, it says this, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus alone. Peter is so good because Peter is just like most of us, right? Peter is doubts. He's the guy who trips up, the guy who makes mistakes, the guy who, you know, doubts. He's like everything. And the reason why this is so good is because this is like, this could have been written last week. Peter, in this moment, doesn't know what to do. All he does is, like, he tweets something, okay? He just, like, puts out some quick sort of information. He just quickly blurts something out. He has, like, I don't know, like, Facebook Live moment or something. He just doesn't know what to do. So he just, like, talks and he just says something. And the text is even really clear. Remember, this is, Mark is writing Peter's first-hand account of these things. So Peter told him, all these events, and then he said, listen, Mark, I didn't know what else to say, so I just like said these things, okay? I just started talking. I can't not talk, and that's what Peter does. And the reason why this is so important, a little side note here, is because we live in a day and age of comments, talking, everybody feeling like their opinion is like the most important thing to get out there. Like the planet cannot go around any further if my opinion is not given on this certain sub area. And so we just talk and we give comments and we are just constantly saying all kinds of things. 
And for me as well, like for me to um, craft a sermon like takes hours. And you know what most of it is? It's like I'll have an idea during the week that comes into my head and, I'm, and I'll be like, okay, I just, I know I don't want to say that. Okay, how do, I, how do I craft this sermon so I don't say that, you know? Because it's like, I, that's not going to come out well. And so hours and hours put into preparation of like, hey, what do I want to say? Charles Hartshorn, and I don't think I included it in, in this uh, quote here. He says this, we live in a century in which everything has been said. The challenge today is to learn which statements to deny and maybe which statements not to say even. Because here's what happens for most of us in the, especially in the context of the online conversation. We are surrounded by people generally who think like us. And so we're surrounded by the same ideas. And then if someone or some idea comes into our sphere of circle that is not like us, then what we tend to do is speak too quickly. Often saying things without critically thinking about them or just saying things because we're pulling like a Peter, right? We're just speaking. We're just commenting. We're just like putting our thoughts into the online sphere. And so the Bible actually helps us to think about this. And so this is a little bit of a side mark here, but I just thought, okay, we're not going to leave this here because the Bible actually gives us really good wisdom for communication. And most of it comes from Proverbs. And the first is that words can kill. Listen to these words from Proverbs. In chapter 12, it says, there is one whose harsh words are like sword thrusts. Probably all of us have been on the receiving end of some of those. Chapter 18 in Proverbs says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. The words that we say have the ability to hurt people and to damage people in such profound ways. But words can also bring life, right? So there's another side to it. Words can bring life. So in chapter 12 again, it says, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. And in chapter 15, it says, a gentle tongue is a tree of life. And I hope that you have also been the recipient of that. That encouragement. Words like in, the, in just the perfect time that encouraged you. That actually like caused you maybe even to like lift your head so that you could keep moving forward. Words can either hurt or kill or words can build up. And maybe the most important thing that Proverbs has to tell us is that there is the right time and season to hear words. So here's a little mashup of a bunch of Proverbs, okay, that talks about the wisdom and the timing of words. This says, the prudent keep their knowledge to themselves. A person finds joy in giving an apt reply or a reply in the right time. And how good is a timely word. Like apples of gold in, a, in settings of silver is the ruling rightly given. So listen. There is wisdom to giving words of life, especially words of life, at the right time. And it's a discipline, I think, that we are slowly forgetting. And one that maybe we don't even like anymore because we've just been, we've bought into this like quick 
communication. And so I think Peter would affirm this statement, okay? There is wisdom in using our words wisely, in measuring our words, and in using our words to build others up. So Peter says these words and he kind of he doesn't know what to say so he just says hey we should make some tents here and if you'll notice in the text uh, Jesus and God basically ignore his suggestion okay nobody even addresses it but God speaks in that moment God speaks and what does he say again in verse 7 the cloud overshadowed them so that that Shekinah glory, that image that we saw in Exodus and 1 King, actually comes around them. And God speaks. He says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. Simple message. Here's what you need to do, disciples. You are now surrounded by the glory of God. You have now gotten a glimpse into who Jesus is. You are seeing the king in action. Now here is your, here is your calling. Here is your word of instruction. Listen to Jesus. And I don't know if you've had the opportunity to talk to um, someone who's maybe curious about Christianity or maybe you've been in like a debate with someone and so you've tried like different apologetics or maybe within the church even there's been like first order things, second order things, maybe even third order debatable things, all kinds of stuff and you have great apologetics, you have great answers. Ultimately though, what you want people to be left with is what does Jesus say? What does Jesus say on this matter? And if he doesn't speak directly to it, what is the principle and how does it connect to Jesus? Winning the debate, winning the apologetics, that's wonderful, that may be helpful, but ultimately you want people to be left with and to wrestle with not your great arguments, but wrestle with who Jesus is. And God here says to these disciples, listen to Jesus, listen to his words. And this is part of the reason why we've actually been going through the Gospel of Mark and looking at all that he has to say and all that the life of Jesus looked like because we want to like pause and, and basically do what God is telling the disciples to do. Listen to Jesus. So the power of the mountaintop, the power of words, and lastly, the power of God's plan. In Second Peter... Peter makes a, he gives his own description in his own letter of what happened to him. And here's how he describes it in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. Peter writes this, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. There's Peter's description in his own words, by his own hand, of what he experienced and what that day was like. But when you read the account that Mark gives... It's a little bit different. 
Peter's own writing is pretty confident. It's pretty like this is what we experienced. It's like a telling of the fullness of who Christ is. But listen to what we read in verse 9 of Mark. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come, does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased as it is written of him. So here we see Jesus actually when... It's all done. He says, okay, don't tell anybody about this. We, we've heard Jesus do that a number of times. But there's like some serious confusion in the minds of these disciples. Like what have they just experienced? What have they just seen? There's a little bit of confusion. They, in their mind, in their imagination, when Elijah is coming, that means like the second coming is going to happen. So like what did we just witness. And then there's confusion around this idea of resurrection. And it was probably confusing because they know that before resurrection, you actually have to die. So again, here's this like prophetic word about their Messiah, about Jesus dying, and it just throws them into great confusion. And, you know, Peter's version later is so much more confident than what we see actually happening here. And what we see happening here is the disciples confused and wondering about what God is doing around them, about the plan that God is executing around them. And what we see in Mark's gospel probably is happening in about 31, 32 AD. And Peter's text is actually written around 64 to 67. So you've got about 30 years of distance between these two texts and the two experiences there. And in those 30 years, there's a lot of confusion, questioning, and up and down. If you look at the end of Matthew's gospel and you see the Great Commission, there's like confusion there's doubting in that moment. If you look through the book of Acts and you see the church as it's growing, there's like confusion, there's doubting, there's wrestling over things. When you look at all the letters that the Apostle Paul writes and all of the others have written, the reason why they're writing those letters is because of confusion, because of doubting, because of misinterpreting things and not understanding what God has done around them. And so in this journey, in this 30 years of experience, you see that God's plan is slowly going into the mind of someone like Peter. It is slowly making sense. Three decades of wrestling with these things, still not totally understanding what God is doing. A.J. Swoboda, in his book on doubt, he writes this, We must not be satisfied with replacing church and community and Eucharist with podcasts. Open yourself to the question that may take decades to pray through, even eternity. 
and do it with some people until you all have wrinkles, okay? I know this is a young church, but you will have wrinkles someday, okay? It takes time, though. Critique the immediate and instead hunger for the wise. Order your pizzas and books and music online, but don't take your deepest doubts and questions there. Listen, people, we have been called to be in community together. And the truths that we talk about on a Sunday here or in missional family may not land and fully make sense, especially when the chaos of life comes around us. When the world starts to shake, when your life has something traumatic that happens, it's in those moments where the immediate will not satisfy, not to the degree that you really need it to. It's in those moments actually where the community, where God's people over years and years are called to sharpen each other. And what Peter is experiencing on the mountaintop here is this moment of brilliance and it took him years, decades to make sense of it. So if there is something in your life and I'm sure there is something where you're like, God, I don't know what you're doing here. I mean, for me, it's even been like, God, I know you're sovereign over all the nations. I know you're sovereign over the world, but like, what's going on in Ukraine, God? Like, what are you doing? How is this actually fitting into your purposes? Confusion. And so in the community of God's people, we're called to wrestle those things and to make sense of them. And slowly over time, some of them landing in, but I like Swoboda's quote, because some of them will go into eternity with us as bits of confusion and bits of wonder. So the mountaintop experience. I want to end the sermon here, just conclude this with three practical ways because I think that God actually wants each of us to have moments of mountaintop experience. Times where we are seeing his brilliance in ways that we've never seen them before. And those ways will actually feed and they will propel us in our journey with Christ. So three ways, and there's many ways that it could be done, but three ways that I want to encourage you is... Number one is this, get close to Jesus through people. Find people who are passionate about Jesus. Find people who follow him. Find people who are willing to sit down with you and to talk about Jesus. And what ends up happening is their experience is not something that you can take as your own, but what it often does is it begins, it, it ignites, it, the sparks maybe land on you and it starts a fire. So draw close to people who love Jesus. Number two, get close to Jesus through his word. We've been talking now for a number of weeks about Lent, this idea of giving something up and then picking up the word of God as a source of food, as a source of sustenance for us. So maybe you haven't done any Lent at all yet. This week, download the resources from our website or take some on your way out. This week, try it one day. Wake up in the morning and let to be the first thing that comes into your mind be a text from the Word of God. Let that be the first thing that enters onto your brain in the morning, when you're awake, okay? You have to be awake first for it to actually work. But bring the word of God to bear on your 
life through his word. And then lastly, get close to Jesus through faith. And by that I mean by taking a step of faith. And for each of us, that's going to be different. You know, last week we were here with the trough and Leah took a step of faith. That was a moment for her to step out and do something. For some of you, it may be stepping out to serve in the church here. Or maybe it's a moment where you actually can share the gospel or share love with someone that you're working with. Some sort of way where you're you're hitting a wall that you know is a wall and you're taking a step forward in trust of God. And in that moment, what you discover is God comes near to you and you experience something. And sometimes you even feel it like in your, your bones, like your, your, your heart is pumping and you're like, I'm, I'm stepping into the will of God for my life right now. And it's a mountaintop moment. Because the mountaintop moments, we all need them, but we're not called to stay there. What they, are, what they give us is actually what we see in verse 8. Let's close by reading this verse. What they give us is clarity. Verse 8, one more time. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And that's what we want from a mountaintop moment is where we have greater clarity. The fog is lifted. And what we see and what we experience is a nearness and a closeness to Jesus that we maybe never have before. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing story, this transfiguration. And we thank you for the way that it's been recorded for us. And Lord, I pray for each one that's here that's hearing this, that they would this week have a moment where they experience a nearness to you, maybe that they've never experienced before. Lord, be it through your word or through fellowship with other believers or just through the experience of life. Lord, would you do that for each of us today? In Jesus' name, amen.